This evening I'd like to speak about the long-range view of our practice and the foundational pillars that keep us uh, feeling grounded in our practice, that carry us forth in our practice to our highest aspiration. We've been giving you over and over again the more moment-to-moment view. How do we handle each moment? The more pixelated view. But we wanted to show you the long-range view. So through our practice, we begin to understand more and more profoundly the nature of this mind-body process through constantly directing you to look at your own minds, to see what it's doing, to see what your heart is doing, to understand how there can be this cause and effect relationship between your body, your mind, your life. And we learn how to bring a more balanced, spacious, caring awareness to our experience. It's uh, so interesting how each of us learn at different times and different ways. We're all so unique. We learn this so that the heart and mind can unfold where it's closed in upon itself. It's painful to see where it's closed in upon itself. And to open to those places, to feel the opening is painful, but it's not a pain coming, it's a pain going. We reveal to ourselves what has long been unrealized through this, opening the heart, opening the mind, in those different folds where we're folded in upon ourselves, different realizations uh, get released, get known to us, and uh, form a connection in our lives, in our hearts that we didn't have before. Very, very important connection. Takes us out of old habit patterns. So we experience the, the unfolding of this life, moment to moment, as we know it, uh, moment to moment. So we're greatly supported by this beautiful environment that really uh, helps us along the way constantly hearing the directions, the instructions, the guidance, the support that we give you to find out for yourselves what's going on. So we learn to understand the gentle, persevering effort that we need. Sometimes we need to bring the effort up. Sometimes we need to back off. Being clear all the while as much as we can. We learn how to have a certain amount of courage to kind of go forth, to kind of lean into the experience sometimes. Sometimes we need to have the compassion to do that. Sometimes we need the courage to back off where we're usually just kind of wanting a result. We need to have the compassion to back off also, to say, we don't need to keep doing this. We don't need to keep digging We don't need to keep pulling our petals open. We can just allow it to open in its own time, in its own way. Just keep applying that courageous compassion moment by moment. So that when things do open up, we have the clarity to see with a more sobering honesty what's really going on. Not being um, pushed and pulled around by the old habit patterns of our mind but to see with new patterns, uh, patterns that are helpful to us, 
patterns like loving-kindness, equanimity, patterns of non-harming ourselves, not harming others. So even when it's hard to bear, we learn how to uh, traverse the terrain, the inner terrain, in a way that's more easeful for us, yet more clear for us. So when this happens, the path to liberation can easily be seen. We learn how to understand with right view, as Steve spoke about the other evening, uh, more in the beginning of our practice, what is unskillful, how we uh, operate unskillfully in our lives. We see it right here in retreat, and we can extend that into our lives to see, oh, yeah, I do this in my own life all the time. I push and pull. I want the results immediately. I'm not willing to just wait. We learn how we have. We're so impatient with ourselves. It's important to learn these unskillful habit patterns that we have. We learn them so intimately here, and it's so necessary to look at them in such a close and honest way. We learn that it leads, of course, to pain and suffering for ourselves, pain and suffering for others. We learn how to uh, deactivate or dehabituate these patterns. We learn this by just coming close to them with our mindful awareness, not feeding them, not fueling them, not asking for anything else to happen, but to just see their arising, their changing, and their passing away. We almost learn that we don't have to do nothing. We don't have to do anything most of the time. We can just see deeply into the true nature and see how impermanent it all really is. We can see how it's so uh, impersonal as well and how much we take things so personally. That's where a lot of the reactivity comes from. We also learn what is wholesome, what really serves us in our practice, what leads to peace and harmony. We learn what's skillful. And by just seeing these unskillful habit patterns and deactivating them, seeing the skillful habit patterns and activating them more by using them over and over again, our lives and our path go in the direction of liberation. So we practice metta here. We practice compassion. And uh, along with it, there's equanimity. We may practice, a lot of you have practiced equanimity in previous retreats with all of us and have mentioned how that has served you in your life not to react so quickly. We learn through the precepts every morning. We remember not to harm by repeating those precepts every morning. So as the Buddha said, we develop what is wholesome, what is skillful, and we let go what is unwholesome, what is unskillful. This is a basic direction of our path. So with these two as a basis, there is the beginning of the development of wisdom. If we didn't have these two, we wouldn't really develop true wisdom. We might understand it intellectually or theoretically, but not experientially. 
it's so important to go through all of this pain because we actually feel the suffering of the unskillful ways and habit patterns of our minds and our hearts. And it's through seeing it over and over again that we finally want to find the way out of it. Not by replacing it by something pleasant, but by finding a way out of it that's lasting and true, that's very deep. So for different, uh, different layers of our being, it, it takes different amounts of time. So for some of us, it takes years or lifetimes uh, to dehabituate these patterns, some uh, particular patterns, and others, it doesn't take as long. But we have to allow it to unfold as, as it happens. We can help it along by uh, developing the skills of loving-kindness, the skills of equanimity and compassion, living in non-harmony by following the precepts, many other paramis that, uh, or wholesome qualities of mind that many of you understand already and are trying to develop in your daily lives. These help us along. A lot of times we'll see people come in to practice and really just feel the purity of their minds and hearts already when they walk in the door. And it's not because they've ever done any vipassana practice, but it's more because they've done a lot of the practicing of these uh, beautiful states of mind, developing the paramis in their daily life. So in time, we learn that we can rely on these natural inner attitudes of refraining from what is harmful and of developing what is harmonious in our lives. So that in our daily lives and also when we come to retreat, no matter what stones are thrown in the pool, in the still pools of our minds and hearts, we always know really deeply that in time, if we're patient and we develop, uh, we put forth the right effort, that in time, that rippling that happens, those big splashes and waves that happen, come back to some calmness, to some clarity. They can cause fear and confusion in the meantime. But in time, they all come back to some calmness, to that kind of calm where we can look into the pool of our minds and hearts and see very deeply what's going on without reactivity. We don't take it personally. We just see how it is and learn how to work with it, how to be with it, in a way that's onward leading, instead of a way that keeps us more uh, deeply ingrained in those habit patterns. So tonight I'd like to talk about how our practice produces refinements of happiness and peace. Um, Many of you have been asking, well, why am I doing this? You kind of come to in the middle of your practice and say, what is this for anyway? Why? <laughs> right? I mean, uh, we do that in the beginning of practice. I just want to reassure you that it's perfectly normal. And uh, to ask the question is also good. Ask, people who ask a lot of questions become very wise. Uh, and, those who, and, and also those who listen to the questions and answers. Um, so it's, it's really, some of you have come in even today and, and asked questions that say, I'm embarrassed to ask this, but I want to because I want to clarify something. And 
and that's good. We want to clarify things to you. And of course, there are some things that can seem very simple to others and very complex to ourselves. And we just need to look at that area and clarify for ourselves. So basically, we start to understand that this path of practice is a path of purification. What we purify in our hearts are the habit patterns of clinging and its various forms, clinging to um, uh, our righteous self-indignation on a very gross form of that things should be a certain way in our lives, in the world, not kind of surrendering to seeing how it is. We cling to um, a sense of ourselves that causes so much pain for ourselves. We take things so personally, rejection and blame, and I do too. I also do that, a lot less now than before, but still it happens. So I have compassion when I see it in the world. So our hearts become more purified of this clinging because we, what happens is we see over and over again how painful it is. And the mind wants to find a way out. We purify the mind of the habit patterns of ill will and fear and jealousy. All of those things that have to do with uh, resistance. Not opening up because we're afraid to do that. Striking out because it's so painful to, to receive uh, the ways of the world. It's painful to be in this world. And so sometimes we have hatred and ill will and we strike out at, at people and ways of uh, groups of people and the world itself. Why is it this way? We don't like it. So instead of accepting and seeing how it is, we use our energy to push against So we purify the habit pattern of ignorance and delusion, those patterns that cause the mind to close down or to ignore what's going on because it's painful to open up to it. And this can be very... um, I can understand this very, very well with a lot of compassion. It's hard to open up to places where we feel pain in our own hearts. It's hard to open up to the pain of the world. We purify the mind and heart of the habit patterns of delusion, the misunderstandings that we have because we see what's going on and we think we see it in a certain way, but actually we're seeing it wrongly. We're seeing it with, through, the, through veils of delusion, veils of greed, veils of ill will. So there are so many ways that we see the immediate short-term effects of well-being also. There are so many of you who have been in the practice here for a lot of years already. And you've seen for yourselves how your way of being in the world, you can walk more easily on your path. There's less reactivity. There, There are ways where there's a more spontaneous feeling of giving, of generosity, a more spontaneous feeling of letting go when we feel hurt or, or when we blame others or we blame ourselves. We more easily let go. 
This is the counter-effect of uh, clinging. When we do our practice, we feel less clinging to the need to be right, to taking things personally, through um, clinging to things and people and ways that we want people to be in our lives when they're just being themselves. So layers of clinging are let go of. There's more compassion for our own pain in relationship to all of that. More compassion for the pain of others. We're more able to open and not ignore what's difficult. To let, unf- the, let the heart and mind unfold where it's folded in upon itself. So those are the immediate and short-term benefits. And I see that in my own practice and, and many of you whom I know uh, very much and, and maybe not very much. I've, seen, I've not seen all of you for um, over years and years of time, but some of you I have, and I see that it's easier for you in your lives. The far-reaching benefits are that these harmful tendencies are gradually weakened. They don't have such deep roots. And that can be felt. You know, a moment of, say, aversion comes, mindfulness comes with it, and we see that those roots are just easily pulled out of that soil of the mind and heart. They don't have much footing. We, We might hear people say something like, aversion came and in, in the experience, and it, did ha- it didn't have much of a foothold in the mind. It wasn't like tenaciously clinging to a sense of beingness, a sense of selfness. The harmful tendencies eventually, in the long term, are totally uprooted. So the mind doesn't even sense or feel greed, hatred, and delusion. There's a... Uh, an, a purity in the mind. So one may wonder, how can we live without greed, without hatred, without delusion? Well, then there's non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, pure wisdom in the mind. Wouldn't that be nice, living with that, you know? And we can see it more and more as time goes by. We're more willing to see things clearly, clearly, so we do see things clearly. And we do have an ability to respond in ways that are very powerful. We may have to be speak more loudly, but there's more compassion in the mind. We may be able to let go when uh, more easily. These are uh, because holding on is not even there. So the tendencies also towards harmony are strengthened. They arise more spontaneously. What becomes more important to us is that not that we're right or not that people see us in a way that uh, we want them to see us. That would be nice too, but it doesn't always happen. Uh, What becomes most important to us is that we want harmony. So that becomes the top priority. And, and I see it in, in my daily life, with my children, with people around me, um, that I'm more willing to let go than to be right. There's actually more of a sense of well-being in my own mind 
when that happens. And of course, I'm still working on it. You can ask Steve. Uh, (laughs) I'm pretty honest about it. Um, And of course, I see it more in retrospect sometimes than I do looking forward, even for the next minutes. Um, But all of this has such a great effect in in our world, in the people around us, you know, in... uh, in, uh, and those people around them. So it has a widening circle in the world. Um, My own children, uh, grown children now, say to me more often than before that they're grateful, that maybe they don't say, I'm grateful you took this path, but they say things like, uh, you're less reactive, or "I'm, I'm happy that you can see my point of view or that it doesn't have to be your way. I mean, those of you who are parents know what I'm saying. And even if you're not, you know, your uncles or aunties or you have people around you that know you and know how more easily you can just accept things as they are. When I, um, just a little story, because I know stories keep you interested in the Dharma talk. (laughs) A lot of this can be theoretical and so like way out there. So um, when our daughter, Therese, uh, uh, Steve helped me raise Therese when he came into our lives when Therese was about 13 and now she's about 33. So, um, and he stayed with it. I mean, that says a lot about the practice, you know. (laughs) So uh, she was... um, She's taking a long time to get through college. And so a few years ago, she had to write an essay about someone she admired. And so I was really surprised that she wrote about me. Actually, I was really surprised (laughs) that she wrote about me. When she was going through uh, her, you know, getting her own hormones and developing in her life, I was losing those hormones. (laughs) And so it was really, really difficult. Um, (laughs) so we were both like bulls in the china shop you know anyway when she she came home and she uh, showed me that she had written this essay and it was about me and she had to write about the proudest moment that she had of her mother and so she wrote about that when she was um I can't remember how old she was. She was in her teens already, maybe in her late teens. And she said that my mother decided to go to Burma after we were all, she felt we were all okay. And she actually ordained as a nun and she shaved her head and she gave up a lot to be able to do that. And I thought, wow, I never thought how much that affected her how much that renunciation, I just thought, I was a little bit fearful that, you know, the the children, the grown children would think, what's mom doing now, you know, but, um, but anyway, they had all gotten together at certain time and, and expressed to one another in one way or another, and I would hear the stories from different ones of them, how, just how my own path has given them courage to take their own path and and they definitely have their own path only the youngest one proclaims herself a Buddhist 
in the way of taking up the Dharma as a way to liberation. But the others have their own very wonderful path, uh, um, being a Christian path or a path of really just observing the laws of cause and effect of karma and not much uh, belief in God, so to say, but understanding and seeing karma as a way, a path of practice for them. So, of course, this has long-range effects on us and on people around us. Sogyal Rinpoche says, the practice of mindfulness unveils and reveals your essential good heart because it dissolves and removes the unkindness or the harm in you. Only when you have removed the harm in yourself do you become useful, really useful to others. So when I first started practicing, like all of you, I was searching for some peace in, in my life. I, I think I told you I was a single parent. and Did I tell this story here? When I was a... Well, I'll tell it again anyway. So, um, so my introduction to this path of practice was that I was a single parent. I came... Um, I was born in the Philippines. I came over here. I was raised in America from the age of two. I went back to the Philippines when I was 19. And then I, I, had, I was married and had children. And so I decided at some point to leave the Philippines. It was a very, very difficult life. And so I came back to America with three children. And um, I was a single parent. Was, it was really a shock to my system to do that because I, I'd really had a lot of help when I was in the Philippines when I came back. It was just me and, and the children, and I was, um, uh, it was challenging, to say the least. So what happened was I, had, uh, saw, I saw a sign that said that there was a spiritual fair at the University of California in Santa Cruz, and I was living on that coast. And when I came uh, uh, past it, I remembered, oh, there's this going on, so I wanted to go in. So I went in with the three children, and they were very rambunctious, and they were, you know, clamoring. They were from ages from six or five under. The youngest was two when I came to America. She just turned two. And so they were pulling on my clothes and they said, Mom, we don't want to go there. We want to go home, the oldest ones were saying. And so I, I went, though, and I thought, well, I just want to have a little break and see what's going on. So I walked into this big cavernous gymnasium. And there was, those were the hippie days, you know, in the, in the 70s. And um, there was a lot of drumming and incense and bells and... <laughs> Um, and I was so fascinated by it all because I had come from the Philippines. And there was all uh, along on the sides of this big gymnasium, there were all these little booths of they were selling this and, you know, come to this retreat and listen to this guru and drumming over here and flute playing <laughs> over there. But way in the corner was a sign that said, Silent Retreat. I did not look at anything else. I just <laughs> headed towards that sign, and all the kids were pulling on me, saying, I want to go home. But I went there, and I met up with some people, and I signed up for a weekend retreat. And that was a retreat I told you I was asleep most of the time in. 
And when I wasn't asleep, I was balancing my checkbook. That was my... (laughs) That was the first retreat I went to. (laughs) So after that retreat, I... I learned, during that retreat, I learned that Manindraji was coming to America, his first time in America. And um, I signed up for it. It was from a weekend retreat, I signed up for a one-month retreat. Like, what was I thinking? But I did. And uh, I didn't really attend the whole retreat. I had to go in and out of the retreat because of the children and, and, um, you know, things that I had to take care of. But during that retreat, it was when uh, Manindra asked me something about, well, what do you want out of this retreat? And I was saying to him that I just wanted some peace and calm in my life. I wanted how to know how to do that in here because I couldn't make it happen out there no matter what I did. So how could I have it in here? And that's what I was really interested in. And from the very beginning, he made clear to me that calm and this kind of sanity, inner sanity that I needed, would certainly come in the practice. But that is kind of a a low bar aspiration. That there was a higher bar that you could have in your practice. And that would be the complete liberation of your mind and your heart. And so, you know, I was young. I was in my 20s. And um, I think I was just born with a kind of faith in something, in anything, maybe. But maybe I was on this path before in another life, too. So he said, you can have complete liberation. So I said, okay. (laughs) I didn't know what I was saying, really, but... It was as simple as that. It was said, if I could have something better than simply calm, you know, well, why not? Why why aim so low, basically? So when he said that there was this possibility for unconditional peace, that meant that there could be peace in my heart no matter what the conditions were outside of me. And because I was suffering so much from the life I had come from, and, you know, now the life I had at that point, I said, sure, why not? And so what was um, eventually open to me was this beautiful passage uh, from the Buddha's teachings about the sure heart's release. The very reason for the teachings that are being offered in, in the Dharma, the very reason that the Buddha offered the teachings was to help us all understand that there could be the sure heart's release. And so I want to read this to you because I always love to to impart the, the teachings, the words of the Buddha, that they're not just mine. So he says in uh, this simile of the heartwood, the purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dhamma is not for gaining merit, nor good deeds, nor rapture, nor concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha. So it's great when anyone comes here to find calm and to understand that uh, is possible. 
And that kind of helps us to keep going and to, uh, when, we, when we see that we can have that calm, perhaps we can also see that maybe we can go more deeply on this path. So it's this complete relinquishing and the purification of greed, hatred, and delusion from the mind stream, total liberation. Manindraji uh, used to say, uh, there are three areas of life that we can bring our careful, mindful attention to in order for us to feel really stable and in order for us to really see the path ahead in a way that Uh, when we practice it, it can become easy for us to traverse this terrain. And he put it in the framework of the three pillars of the Dharma. And so that's what I uh, want to talk about now, these three pillars. Steve last night talked about living a life of Dharma. And in a way, this is another way of looking at living a life uh, of Dharma basing your life on these three pillars and not letting any one of them be um, put aside. When the Dharma came to the West, it came into this kind of um, society and, and atmosphere of a lot of intelligence and psychological and scientific intelligence, of course. And so when the Dharma came to the West, a lot of people in the West were interested in meditation in developing the mind. But what happened was, uh, this is one of the pillars, this is the third pillar of the Dharma, but what happened was that the first two pillars of the Dharma, very important pillars, were kind of left out of the picture. And now they're kind of being reintegrated into uh, understanding what the Buddha's teachings are all about. And these two pillars are practicing dana or generosity, also practicing sila, living in harmony. By, uh, we do that every morning by remembering the precepts. So I'd like to talk about these three in brief tonight. The first pillar is living uh, in a way where we can feel our sense of generosity in the world, uh, feel our sense of being able to open our hearts and to actually act on that opening of the hearts. We practice generosity in a mindful way. We feel it from the inner attitude of generosity, and then we give so that we actually act it out in the world. These two things are important, the feeling of generosity in our hearts and the actual acting on it in the world, giving of our time, our energy, giving of our compassion, our understanding, uh, our material, sometimes uh, sharing our own life, our material life, our resources with others. And the second pillar is sila. Sila is really living in harmony, living in harmony with others, living in harmony with ourselves, that kind of connection, wholesome connection we have with others. It's uh, actually uh, articulated as a way, in a way of refraining when we take the precepts. I undertake the training to refrain from harm uh, in body uh, in, in, and in speech. And the third pillar has to do with bhavana. Bhavana means developing the mind and the heart. This is the practice of meditation. 
Bhavana means uh, learning how to calm the mind, learning how to develop concentration, and from that concentration and that calmness in mind, that mind that turns into the still forest pool, we see more deeply into the workings of the mind, and we learn to develop wisdom through that. So this is, these are all the practices that we learn in the Dhamma, and we learn to make them a foundation for our living in the world, for living a, a life of Dhamma. We find great refuge. We can find great refuge in it. So it's important to develop them all in our lives. When our mind isn't plagued by regret, by blaming others, or by being blamed, by a sense of unworthiness, when we feel a sense of harmony within, when we feel that we can really let go, we can more, these are the practices of Dan and Sila, we can sit in a way when we practice meditation and really feel at ease with ourselves and with life. This is from the Tibetan uh, heart essence of the great perfection, Dzogchen, where it said, Now in our day-to-day lives we know that the more stable, calm, and contented our mind is, the more feelings and experiences of happiness we will derive from it. The more undisciplined and untrained and negative the mind is, the more we suffer mentally and physically as well. So we can only see too well that a disciplined and contented mind is a source of our happiness. So not to discount or minimize the practices in your life of of dana and sila, but to really look at how we're practicing them as well. In in the teachings, if you read the suttas, you would see that over and over again, the Buddha would begin with the practice of dana when he would talk to a group. And then he would follow that with the practice of sila. And only when those two were really established, then he would offer the meditation. So the first pillar uh, of foundation in, in the Dhamma is the pillar of dana. So dana has two aims, this uh, Uh, Mindfulness and the development of generosity has two aims. The first aim is to benefit or help others. And the second aim is to benefit ourselves. And we don't know so much about the second aim. When I was first um, learning from Manindra, and I was helping him through a period of of illness, he was giving a lot to him of my time and energy. And he said, do you understand that in the giving of yourself and your energy and time and your compassion, that how much that's helping you on the path to liberation? And I said, well, no, I just, I'm giving you because I, to you because I love you and I, I respect and revere you. And he said, but if you understand how much you're giving and how that develops wisdom in your own mind, that you're doing this for yourself as well. It's not selfish. It's understanding with wisdom. So don't close down to that, he said, because I had a a view from my upbringing that, um, you know, I don't do this for myself. I do this for others. But it's important to understand how we're giving to ourselves as well. 
So when we give to others, of course, uh, it relieves others of their suffering in the present time or for future times. It inspires in them a sense of worthiness. So this is uh, just kind of reflecting on when we give to others, what happens that others feel worthy of our kindness. They feel worthy that we can share ourselves with them. Then somehow, maybe in some indirect way or even some way much later or some convoluted way, they say, oh, I'm a worthy person because you're giving me your time your love, your energy. This in itself is a great gift that we can give to others. It doesn't have to be some kind of material resource. It can be the giving of ourselves. It gives them a sense of inner richness. And a lot of our kind of closing down and our feeling of limitation or fear to be able to give is because we have this sense of inner poverty this, uh, we have a sense that there's nothing we can give from. But when you give to others, it's letting them know that um, they have a sense of inner richness themselves, where we feel their worthiness. It helps them to recognize that. It makes them feel loved and not just know it in their hearts. Um, There was a Uh, a little exchange and kind of a circle of giving and receiving when not so long ago there was this um, young man, Jorge Gonzalez, and he he gave me permission to say his name. And um, he wanted, he he asked, it took him, it was quite um, humbling of him, he said, to be able to ask me to get him in a retreat because he there's a retreat that we do that's only done by lottery and he might not get in and he didn't. So he asked me if I could get him in. And so I, I, I said, yes, I would try. So got him in the retreat. He didn't have much to give really. And so he, what he did was he sent me an email and he said, I, um, click on here and there's a YouTube for you. And so I, I clicked on and he he learned he's a wonderful concert pianist and um, he, he um, I clicked on and then he said this is for Kamala in that little YouTube <laughs> and he said I offer this to you something like that with all my heart and then he sat down and very mindfully he played this concert for me it was really really beautiful you know, it wasn't anything material, but it was one of, I think, the, one of the most touching gifts I've ever received in my life. So it, it really, I, I don't have a big sense of unworthiness, but, you know, I still carry that around sometimes. It's kind of far away and wispy sometimes. But for me to really feel that I was a worthy person in his life, that gave me a sense of inner richness because uh, that it means a lot to me to serve to serve him and and the people he represents. The Buddha said, "If beings knew as I know the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their use without sharing them with others, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess their heart. 
and even if it were their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it, if there were anyone to receive it. He also said, it is meritorious even to throw, wa- even to throw away water after washing one's plate to have a generous thought that the food particles may feed the creatures in the ground. He was just that in tune with generosity all the time, you know, even throwing, washing his food bowl out, giving it. When Manindra was with us, you know, I would leave food and go to work and come back and say, were you okay eating alone here? Was everything all right? And he said, he would say, oh yes, I was fine. He said, I have the dog and the cat and the birds outside and I gave food. I left food for each one of them from my plate and I fed them. I would see him feeding the dog and the cat with his hands. And even the, even the ants and the insects I put on the side, you know, for them. Honest, he would do that. And we did have a lot of cockroaches. <laughs> He would do. He was. He was just so giving in every way. He would. You know, it, when you give, it's really important if you can to give um, personally because it it it's that karmic act that is much more ingrained in your heart when you can give personally. So we'd be at the table, and he would have his plate of food that was already offered to him. He would. maybe take a piece of banana and he would just shove it in my mouth you know directly (laughs) and at first I would say what are you doing and then I would realize after his teachings that he was giving to me personally that was very important for him (laughs) so also you know it it inspires gratitude in the other person when we give you know to just we don't think of that very often that when we give something to someone they have a beautiful most of the time they have a beautiful sense of gratitude not all the time but and we're not doing it for that reason but if they have gratitude what a beautiful gift we're giving them when they feel gratitude for any gift that we're giving them so there's a lot that happens but mostly what happens is that we're letting go we're more easily letting go. And this, this helps us to just let go every time we give something. So that's the first uh, aim uh, of giving to others. And uh, the second aim of that is that, uh, as I just mentioned, we learn how to let go more and more. We have, in our own hearts, we see loving-kindness, we see uh, compassion, we see equanimity, we see happiness when we see another person happy by giving. We reflect on that later, and it brings a, a great sense of well-being in our own hearts. Utejaniya says, it's giving away your greed. That's the far-reaching benefit. When we give, we're really giving away our greed. We're letting go of that clinging that's so tenacious as a habit pattern. So that's the first pillar. And the second pillar is sila. Sila is living in harmony, careful with the careful consideration 
of our words and our behavior so that we have deep respect for all beings, including ourselves. So that's not left out of the picture. There are certain junctures in my own life, I don't know about you, but certain junctures for me where I usually want to clean up my act a little bit. It's usually after a retreat when I see what my mind has been doing and say, I really could use some more uh, support in that area, some more development of something, you know, watching what I say, watching how I act, and um, different ways that I see habit patterns. And so I give it, uh, I, I look over the precepts and see what in this area do I want to uh, develop more or want to let go of more or where in this area do I want to be in more harmony with others. So as you know in the precepts when we take the training they're not commandments at all. Just look at how they're written. I undertake the training to refrain from. And we take the precepts every day because we can't be perfect and we know that Um, We transgress sometimes, and so we take the training again. It's a training that we take over and over again. There's nobody that's going to punish you. You know, if you, um, there's no one anywhere that's going to say you did wrong, but, and so um, you're a bad person. We just undertake the training over and over and over again. The Buddha offered this training because he had great compassion for beings, because knowing how it is, how deep those tendencies are in the heart. So it was out of compassion that he gave these trainings to us. And we need to remind ourselves of them over and over again. It said that there are two guardians of the world, and um, they're known in the ancient language of Pali as Hiri and Otapa. You don't need to memorize those words, but they're good words to use because in English they're not translated very well. They mean much, they have much more depth of meaning in the Pali language. Hiri is translated as moral shame. So that's not a very uh, good way that we think of it in, in English. Moral shame is something that you kind of cower, you kind of shrink about. But um, this doesn't mean in Pali, it doesn't mean like a self-aversion. It, it really means it's an internal reference that our uh, words, our behavior, were somehow not in harmony with, uh, with our own highest aspirations. That we, we feel like, oh, that, that wasn't quite right how that interaction went. That wasn't quite right how... Uh, what I said or what I did. It's not beating ourselves over the head about it, but it's more like it comes as an understanding, as a wise, compassionate understanding. It's rooted in self-respect. And it, in, what it induces us to do is to shrink, not in and of ourselves, but to kind of shrink back from times when we might uh, do harm to ourselves, to another. It's out of respecting our personal integrity. This is hiri, a respect for our personal integrity. 
Otapa is this moral dread or moral fear, and it has more of an external orientation. It's a healthy form of fear about the results of wrongdoing. And say that we stole something or we, um, we lied, and that has a kind of a relationship to how will that affect others? Say when we say something, say some gossip that isn't completely true or maybe it is true, but it's gossip. So we, we say something about another being that spreads a rumor and or we, we take something that doesn't belong to us, then it's not so much a fear that we'll be put in jail, although, you know, we can transgress by killing and all of that, by um, doing something more serious. Of course we have a fear of that. But for beings such as us, it's more like the fear of losing the respect of those we love, losing the respect of those we respect, of those we revere, losing our connection with them, feeling uh, that blame from them. And so this, ha- this is a voice of conscious conscience that this has dire consequences because if, if people, if others that we revere and respect know this of us, it's, it's kind of shameful in a wholesome way and we, we don't want that in our lives. So this is Hiri and Otapa, the two guardians of the world. The Buddha said that this magnificent chariot of the Eightfold Noble Path has Hiri Otapa as its backrest. If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely on, something to depend on, something on which you can sit comfortably as you travel toward your destination. If these qualities are weak, you will risk losing mindfulness and all the dangers that ensue. So this Hiri and Otapa accompanies mindfulness. Uh, It's two of the beautiful qualities of mind. So this sila is a beautiful inner place of protection. We, We practice sila as more as a form of renunciation. Uh, than we do that we want to achieve or do something or attain something. Um, In the long run, yes, what we want to uh, attain, if we want to use that word, is connection with others, a sense of harmlessness with others, a sense of when we walk into a room, they, they don't fear us. We are completely trusted by other beings. So sila is actually the gift of fearlessness to all those around us. When we're around them, then people know that they're safe. So both dana and sila are sturdy foundations and pillars of the dharma from which our lives can grow. And this is something we need to take home with us uh, in, in our practice here, to really understand the gravity and the seriousness of these practices of generosity and living in harmony through uh, the keeping of the precepts. So just briefly uh, talking about bhavana, because I I won't take long in this because we've been practicing this all this time. These instructions that we've been getting in meditation and understanding how to navigate 
this inner world, how to calm the mind, how to bring some concentration to it so the mind is more unified and collected. And through that calmness and that unification and that collectedness, how to see more clearly into the nature of this life, this human life. How to see more clearly so that we can uh, walk the path in a way that we have this such a deep sense of well-being that we can we we can take uh, the higher road all the time. So bhavana means bringing forth what has not yet been developed, and that's what our meditation is all about: bringing forth what has not yet been developed. Basically, it's bringing forth wisdom. We learn it through being uh, understanding how to calm the mind, as I said, through concentration as well. And this uh, sila, this ability to feel a harmony within ourselves, uh, prepares the mind for this. When we develop uh, samatha, we develop a way of feeling that we can uh, be with our practice in, in a way that brings courage to whatever we open to. Because we know that we can be grounded in some calmness. We can have some concentration. And that way, in that way, we can develop wisdom. In the concentration practices that we do, like when we stay on the breath over and over again as a concentration practice, or we do metta because we're on the different uh, phrases over and over again, or the feeling of metta, that's a development of concentration where the mental energy is repeatedly directed to one uh, place or a limited area of uh, experience. And whenever the attention goes away, we ignore what it goes to and we just bring it back over and over and over again. So when we bring the attention back over and over again, what happens is this very strong force field is developed. So some of you have reported feeling that sometimes you feel like something is far away, like the hindrances are far away. It's like we're in a bubble, uh, protected from the hindrances. Some of you have even used that uh, uh, articulation. Feels like I'm in a bubble. And actually sometimes thinking something's wrong with that. But that's actually the sense that we get with the development of concentration. It's like the hindrances can't come into that force field that we have developed. So uh, it's a very profound sense that ordinary experiences are far away. It's very enjoyable. We have this sense of mental seclusion. And concentration was very exalted and praised by the Buddha. But we use this concentration in... uh, for a higher reason, actually. In and of itself, it doesn't develop any wisdom. And so we, we take that concentration and then we use it to... Um, we use that kind of concentration to go on momentary objects. So each moment of that strong concentration, instead of being on one object or a limited uh, area or field of experience, 
we open the attention and allow it to be on changing objects, on hearing, on seeing, on tasting, on smelling, on all of the mind states that arise, wholesome and unwholesome. So it, we allow the attention to go where it goes naturally and notice where, where it goes naturally. Concentration is still with us, It's the momentum on changing objects rather than on one object. So we don't lose the concentration. It stays at a certain level, but it's on changing objects. And in the first uh, area I spoke about, when we're doing pure concentration practice, this is called samatha. When we open the practice so it goes on changing objects, this is called vipassana. And so this is the practice that we've been doing here. Mostly is vipassana practice. So everything that arises becomes the object of attention. We're not trying to force it in any particular way. So through this uh, practice of vipassana, we don't feel calm and the mind doesn't feel unified. Actually, it can feel quite chaotic. And a lot of you report that it does. It feels uh, unpleasant. You know, you, you want to give up your practice. Sometimes it's not a, a feeling of calm. It's a feeling of chaos. And actually, this is very normal. The mind begins to see a lot more and a lot more quickly. And not only does it see a lot more and more quickly, but sometimes it sees things in a magnified way. This is the way Vipassana works. So we see very deeply into the unsatisfactoriness of what's going on in the mind, what's going on in the body. We open to dukkha. We open to anicca, the impermanence of everything, which uh, we've been speaking about here. We open to and see through this, through anicca, we see the impersonal nature of it all. And I spoke about that the other night, so I'm not going to fill that in tonight. We begin to see this with everything that we turn the mind to. We see it with bodily sensations. We see it with perception. see it with feeling, the unpleasant, pleasant, and neutral feeling. We see it with intentions, also (coughs) with volitional formations, also with consciousness itself. So the mind begins to open to everything and see the three characteristics of the impermanent, impersonal, unsatisfactory nature in all experience. These are the three insights into reality. So wisdom is being developed. And as the mind continually stays on the objects that are arising and passing away, there's a deep equanimity that's developed quite naturally. This comes further along in practice, but it's a very important place in practice. And as Steve mentioned the other night, it's really important to hear this even though you don't experience any of it now or some of it now. It's really important to hear this because when it is experienced, you'll you'll remember that, oh, this is what they're talking about. A lot of times in my own practice, I didn't understand what they were talking about. 
But then I realized, oh, I've heard this. And actually, I've heard this quite a few times. And now I can understand it because it's coming through experience. So this very profound equanimity arises because the mind is so used to seeing things over and over and over again. That's why it's important that you see these things over and over and over again in your own mind. There's no magic bullet. There's no way that you can just, depending on your karma, it's going to happen, uh, unfold in certain ways. We may want to get relief from it at certain points, but we can't. So equanimity keeps developing along the way. And at some point, because there's so much momentum and so much power in the practice, and there's no reactivity going on to whatever's happening, there's no greed, there's no hatred in the mind, there's no clinging to how we want it or how it was before, there's no pushing away to how it is now, There's complete openness to what's going on. There's an absence of delusion because the mind is seeing everything so completely clearly. And because of the purity of the mind at that point and the ability, because the mind has developed so much momentum, the direction towards greater freedom is inevitable from the relative it can leap to the, absolute, to the unconditioned, from the conditioned reality that it had been experiencing from time immemorial. It can take that leap, not because of any direction that a self has made, but because it's very natural for it to do that. That's why momentum in practice, continuity is so important, And it's so important to go through everything. And so that from that strong momentum, it is said to leap uh, into the unconditioned, a word used synonymously with nibbana or nirvana. And this is what the Buddha was talking about as the goal of the holy life. It is an ineffable experience because it is really a non-experience. It's beyond conceptual understanding. It's because it's beyond all conditioned existence. It's hard to understand because we understand only this conditional uh, relative world that we live in. But there's something beyond that. It's beyond words of description, imagination, beyond formations even beyond knowing itself. But it's possible. And so these are the Buddha's words about that from the Odana. There is the unborn, the uncreated, the unconditioned, the unformed. If there were not, there would be no escape discerned from that which is born, created, conditioned, and formed. But since there is the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, and unformed, escape is therefore discerned from what that which is born, created, conditioned, and formed. I will teach you the far shore, the subtle, the difficult to see, 
the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the secure, the destruction of craving, the amazing, the unailing Nibbana, the island, the shelter, the refuge, Nibbana. So this is the realization, if this is our highest potential as human beings, the sure heart's release. And this potential exists for everyone, no matter what age, no matter what culture, man or woman, or any culture that you come from. This realization is available to all who develop the path. If you open to the possibility, your life will incline in that direction. So even if it's not comprehensible to you now, your life will incline in that direction if you believe that it, it can exist for you. So don't stop short. So let's sit for a moment. So uh, the next sitting will be at a quarter past. And I believe Steve has another bedtime story. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.